The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop treating Eliza as your marriage counselor and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 290 with guests Tim Sneath and Ian Ellison Taylor, recorded live Tuesday, October 30th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now bringing world-class expert-led training in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, TeamSystem, and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls, with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who'd like to change the world, but they won't give him the source code, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard Campbell's here. I'm here. It's a party. Yep. It's all good once we're both here. Yeah. Hey, uh, Richard. Yes, sir. I got something interesting for this week's Better Know Framework. Let me roll the music. I'll tell you about it. Uh, that's, that tune is growing on me, Carl, bit by bit. Well, uh, I'm glad you think so, because, you know, this week I'm going to talk about, or today's show, I'm going to talk about system.security.principle.windowsprinciple. Oh. And just a brief uh, talk about what principles are, what the principle is. It's really an object that contains role information about an, a particular identity, which is your your identity on the system. And Windows Principle is a particular implementation or, or subclass of principle that is particular to the Windows operating system. And you can also do your own, roll your own principles with your own kind of roles and that aren't related to Windows. So what Windows principle is good for is it allows the, your code to check the Windows group membership of a Windows user. So you could see what groups a Windows user belongs to. And in particular, you know, the most common use of the principles to check to see whether this person is an administrator or not. Right. And, uh, or, or in, in any group or any role. Yeah. Domain user would be relevant as well, right? Yeah. It's great for enabling or disabling, um, features in an application based on that. You know, some things that are available to admins that aren't available to, uh, mere mortals. Yes. And, uh, that's how it's done. There's a whole section in the uh, in the .NET framework around identity and principles, and that's where it is. It's in system.security.principle. And that's a big topic all by itself. You could do a whole show on that. We certainly could. Maybe we should get Pat Hines back on to talk about that. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I miss Pat. Yeah. So you got, a, got an email for us, Richard? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of other shows, here's sort of a forward-looking email that I, I wanted to throw out to the listeners to just say, hey, do you want us to go down this path? And this is from Jesper Niederman from Denmark. Hi, Carl and Richard. Thank you for your good work. I love your podcast. They're currently my favorite way to get a short overview of new .NET technologies. A little while ago, you mentioned in one of your shows that you wanted to dig deeper into aspect-oriented programming. 
Why don't ah. you invite the maker of open source project PostSharp and LAOS, Gal Fratauer? And obviously, Gal is also a Dane. Uh, you can download <laughs> and read about PostSharp at postsharp.org. It uses .NET attributes to implement aspects by injecting IL code into your assemblies. It works seamlessly with Visual Studio. I'm especially impressed by the lightweight edition, LAOS, which is extremely easy to use. You can, for instance, using just an attribute on the assembly level, get your own custom exception handling in your entire assembly or implement a Mm. security check as a precondition in all your web services. The sky's Mm. the limit. I don't have a lot of experience with AOP, but I'm pretty sure nothing comes close to LAOS in the .NET world when it comes to power combined with ease of use. Regards, Jester Niederman. Jesper, thanks very much for your email. Uh, I'm going to throw it out to the listeners. I, I sort of moved towards aspect-oriented programming and backed off a bit. If you guys want to see more, by all means, send us an email, .NET rocks at franklins.net, and I'll yep. go after this show and maybe a couple of others, and we can really dig into the concepts. And of course, if you have any comments or questions about the show, or you just want to shout out or, you know, shot at some free swag, send us an email at .net rocks at franklins.net. And, uh, if you're interested in changing gears, you like to go to Manhattan, New York City for a year and, uh, hang out with some exciting folks, do some great work and live rent free in an apartment in Manhattan for a year. That's right. They're going to pay for your apartment. If you qualify, you might want to check out this post, this blog post at shrinkster.com slash KH6 to hear all about the Infusion New York City tour. And uh, Greg Brill from Infusion has uh, sucked up a whole horde of .NET Rocks listeners now, uh, realizing that DNR listeners are tend to be really engaged and tend to be really interested in in their work, and uh, you know uh, so much so that they listen to podcasts while they run, jog, and uh, cut the lawn. So you know that that's just the kind of employees they want. <laughs> <laughs> listening while they get a vasectomy or go for an MRI scan. Oh my god, the vasectomy. <laughs> don't bring don't remind me of that. <laughs> anyway, it's at uh, shrinks.com slash KH six. Okay, Richard, let's uh let's bring on our guest, uh Tim Sneath and Ian Ellison Taylor. Tim is the group manager for the Silverlight and WPF technical evangelism team based out of Microsoft's corporate headquarters. His mission should he choose to accept it? I can't help myself. His mission <laughs> is to see developers create stunning applications built on the Microsoft platform and to persuade his mother that computers aren't out to get her. Very good, very good. Oh, this is going to be a great show, I can tell already. <laughs> Among other strange obsessions, Tim collects vintage releases of Windows and has a near-complete set of shrink-wrapped copies that date back to the late 80s, as well as a museum of virtual PC images from Windows 1.0 to the present. Tim spent the first 30 years of his life in the UK, and his occasional attempts to speak English with an American accent for ease of comprehension caused much hilarity amongst his colleagues. His popular blog covers client platform technologies and can be found at blogs.msdn.com slash Tim S. Welcome, Tim. Hi. That all right. sounded a lot funny when I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great bio. I wish I, mine was that funny. Uh, Ian, Ian Ellison Taylor is the general manager for Microsoft's presentation platforms and tools group, including WPF, core components for Silverlight, and related developer tools for Visual Studio. Ian has worked at Microsoft for 17 years and prior to joining the WPF team in 2001, had been involved in a number of user experience related initiatives on a number of different teams, including Windows 3.1, Windows 95, Internet Explorer, Java, and Windows XP. Welcome, Ian. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is going to be a fun show. Uh, you know it's going to get out of hand. <laughs> I guarantee it. We've got too much history in the room, yeah. I'm afraid. The virtual room, I'm before speaking of. Because we've both been, or we've all been, involved in Windows since those very early days. You know, one thing that strikes me right away, Tim is uh, your museum stuff. You know, you're collecting the copies. You oh, don't, yes. you, you know, you're the first person I've talked to, and I'm serious, who has the attitude that, hey, these things are going to be valuable someday. Don't throw <laughs> them away. <laughs> <Hello>? <laughs> 
Yeah, this is my pension, basically. I'm just hoping that, you know, in days to come, you know, I'll be able to sell the, the whole set on window, on eBay for some well, ludicrous sum and retire to Hawaii. Well, I, I got the feeling that Richard's laughter is mocking laughter. And, you know, <laughs> may, I, I honestly think that because people, you know, because technology has changed so fast and because machines obsolete so fast, you know, we have a propensity to want to throw away the old and embrace the new. And because of that, the old stuff is valuable. It's going to be valuable. Can can you possibly tell me, Richard, where you could get a 286 right now if you wanted one? They don't exist. You cannot get one. Uh, yeah. They've they don't all exist been anymore. thrown away. I'm pretty. You know what? That's not true. I know there's one in my back room. <laughs> you know, because I because I don't throw computers away. They're piled up in my storage room. In fact, just before we were starting to record the show, my wife was saying, "You're throwing that stuff but I away, mean, right?" You know, the ability to run original 286 software on a 286 at some point in the future is going to be an amazing marvel, don't you think, Tim? Yeah, I mean, the, the sad thing in a way is that, you know, even things like Virtual PC, they, you know, they're kind of doing away with support for some of these older um, uh, versions themselves. So, you know, they're deprecating support for old processor instructions and things so that yeah. they run, uh, you know, Windows Server 2008 better. And, and I just think that's a real shame because, as you say, it, you'll get to the point where, you know, it'll just be this kind of a screenshot is all we've got. Yeah. Well, and I think of that Windows 1 box that's still in the shrink wrap. <laughs> You can't tell me that disc still works. <laughs> sure it does. You know, it's 20 years yeah, old. Yeah. It, it's, it's now right. So, I'm not breaking the shrink wrap to tell you. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think it'll last a little bit longer than that. Who knows? I, I've spent enough time doing disaster recovery with old media of various kinds that find, but yeah, they don't wraps? function anymore. But, of course, the other challenge would be finding, physically getting in your hands a five and a quarter yeah. inch drive <laughs> that still works. With the uh, USB cable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, I think that most when people have computers, they think, "How do I get this working so that I can use it?" Not what is the value going to be someday in the future. And it, it, that's what makes things collectible is when people throw them away, not thinking. Well, anyway, and and I was laughing because I figure the Smithsonian will come to you, Tim, and they don't pay ah. worth means. <laughs> Well, Ian, of course, uh, was 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 there pretty much since the beginning. I mean, Ian joined Microsoft at about what twelve, Ian, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you must have been working on. on... I, I was at least thirteen. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ian has such useful looks. You can't see this, but we'll have to get a, a photo that does him justice for the uh, oh, for the site afterwards. He's flattery. But, uh, he's, he's been with the company for about seventy four years, and uh, so <laughs> <laughs> feel like that some days. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that uh, um, uh, Tim really had uh, maintained his, his English sense of humor. I've been here too long. I think I've I think I've lost mine. My my bio is I'm gonna have to go go off and, and rewrite it quite a bit and, and start matching uh, Tim and in, in his uh, comedic value um, <laughs> to to capture some of the the the, the true spirit. Um, um, but we'll we'll beat we'll beat some of the uh, the the English history out of you um, over the over the years and, and can completely convert you to American and then <laughs> no 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 I for one am a huge fan of the English wit and you know it comes out in the technology too when I was in a recording school we were using these boards these mixing boards called solid state logic boards they're just these enormous room-sized mixing desks and uh, they're British right so they have this computer and when you do something wrong the computer insults you <laughs> and Monty Python's, you know, just says on the screen, what are you trying to do? Blow me up, you shithead. <laughs> it says that to you. And this is like a $250,000 piece of equipment. I love that. Sounds awesome. It's great. Well, guys, what are we going to talk about? I don't know. Well, hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, so much for that. Let's just move. Thanks very much for coming. Very short, uh, very short conversation. Yeah. We should probably go back a little bit because I mean, Ian, you know, not not just uh, joking about uh, his his youthful looks and age. The the um, Ian kind of started uh, right back in in the early days of Windows. So a lot of these boxes of shrink wrap software on my uh, bookcase here, he physically contributed to as a as a developer. What was your first first version of Ian uh, of Windows, Ian, that you? Uh, you wrote. I came in um, actually going back in the in the very very early days. I actually interned in in languages, so I worked on on the 
C and C++ compilers back then. And I, 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 I only worked there for a little while. And um, so that work was being done on a mixture of both Windows and OS 2. Because um, in you know those days, it wasn't quite clear where things were going to go. Um, and then uh, shortly after that, I switched to work on the Windows uh, 3.1 team, just, just as Win 3.0 had, uh, was really taking off. Um, so this was uh, mid-90. And, uh, um, but still, the, the, the Windows team, um, the Windows 3.1 team was something sort of a, of, a, of a bit of a renegade team. I mean, it, it, it was a pretty small team, and everyone was a little crazy. Um, and I love the work ethic. And, uh, but it, it's so weird to think back at just what happened in the years after that. And to think in the very early days where things were not set in stone, it wasn't clear that, the, that Windows was going to be as popular as it turned out to be. There were lots of questions going on about should we do this or that or how's it all really going to turn out. And it's just fascinating to to sort of look back a little bit and and see how things uh, almost by accident <laughs> came, came to be, which is what I love about Tim's office because uh, I hadn't seen shrink wrap copies of Windows um, uh, in so long. I mean, it's exactly as you described that I had an office full of floppy disks and threw them out the first opportunity I could because it just taken up all this space. Right. And didn't think to keep. <laughs> now, having worked on these products for years, you're just kind of sick of the sight of them when they finally ship. And uh, I just want to move on to the next thing. And, and now, all these years later, I, I so wish I'd kept um, some of the original copies. So I have to sort of lust after Tim's collection in his office whenever I want to buy. I have a, a CD that has a preview version of beta Windows 95. Awesome. Yeah, it's like a community. It's like a CTP edition. I'm, I'm, it wasn't called that, of course, but but I've always kept that thinking, yeah, just in case. A couple of years out. ago, and I, I cleaned up my office, and I found a copy of uh, German Windows for Work Groups. Um, I guess it was, I can't remember, it was 20 floppies or something, you know, um, <laughs> And I don't know what I was doing with them. I must have been testing them at some point. But um, uh, you know, I was, it, it just littering my uh, one of the bottom bottom parts of my drawer in my office. And uh, you know, I've still got a few of these things lying around that uh, I'm not exactly sure where they came from. <laughs> it's funny all these artifacts. I mean, I know there's a lot of interesting things like Raymond Chen's blog, who writes a lot about kind of you know some of the the vagaries of uh, you know developing uh, Windows for backward compatibility and some of the the trade-offs uh, that uh, have to be made. And uh, uh, we've got a, an old shelf as well of uh, books in our uh, stationery uh, room uh, here in Building 18 where people just sort of throw out all these old stuff that they're sort of uh, finished with. And some of, you know, again, just some of the interesting sort of uh, things, you, you know, that uh, people have, have uh, given up on. You know, I mean, some of the early um, Pets old books, for example, are oh, yeah. fascinating to read and compare with, you know, the modern um, Win32 APIs. And, uh um, some of those early books that uh, there was one called Windows or Inside Windows 95 that uh, uh, was very very nearly called Inside Chicago. They, uh, I think, they, it was literally the week that they went to press that we uh, came came up with a final name for it. And you know, there's lots of interesting pictures of prototypes of uh, of the interface, etc. And uh, yes, it's very interesting to kind of see some of these these changes. I've also got a a, a binder from the very very first time we did an event uh, around. Uh, I think Ian, you've got one of these too. Uh, the first time we did an event around uh, um, Longhorn, um, mm-hmm. and this was kind of you know way before PDC03, um, and this was the first time we presented it to a very small hand selected group of uh, uh, maybe uh, you know 50 uh, ISVs, and uh, uh, we we set this incredible kind of uh, Cairo esque vision of uh, <laughs> how everything was going to uh, uh, be wonderful. The you know the toaster API for for you know baking your bread and everything else. <laughs> The mind reading accent. <laughs> now you you threw out a couple of code names. Chicago was the code name for Windows ninety five, but Cairo, for those who don't remember, was a mythical operating system on the hill, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> I, I remember they used to say all roads lead to Cairo, and I think it was about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was about the time that object oriented programming hit Windows and C plus plus and all this stuff, and pretty soon people began to realize that. Everything in the OS could be an object, and um, you know when that happened, there the whole OS just sort of became this programmable blob. Is is that a good uh, a good characterization? And you know what happened to that vision? Did it get realized? Yeah. And and you know what what was the end result? So this was again in in the early nineties, and and in Cairo. Cairo was definitely that catch-all term for pretty much anything new and cool that that uh, uh, the team could could uh, dream up. 
And right. I actually I had a Cairo spec somewhere, and it was enormous. And you know, and it was it was crazy huge. And uh, thinking back of, um, and this was a long time ago, so you kind of expect specs to be pretty big and complicated these days. But back then, it was it was enormous. Um, and, you know, even for uh, compared to its its, its peers, and it, it came out of yeah that that uh, general philosophy that was that was pretty big. Um, about everything being object oriented, you got it exactly right, and it and it just kept growing. That was part of the the joke about Cairo was it, it was amazing ideas in there, um, but they never stopped. You know, as soon as they were sort of had figured out a few hard problems, somebody would bring up some new problem, and the whole specking process would start again. Um, so Cairo just kept growing and growing and growing, and it, and it did become a bit of an inside joke at uh, at one point, um, and uh, but a lot of the ideas that were that were in Cairo. Um, did make it into Windows products. It's like this is a, one of the nice things about software is a lot of these things, even if they don't make it into a into a into the products in the way that they were originally envisaged, they do make it into uh, into other products. People will take a lot of those great ideas, um, and so a lot of um, the UI parts of Cairo that I was paying attention to back in the day actually ended up in Windows 95. Um, we used a lot of the basic ideas that Cairo was prototyping and then uh, put a little bit of a more practical twist on them and use them for the for the some of the design and, and research that, that that went into Windows 95. And in fact, some of the developers that worked on Cairo actually came and joined the Windows 95 shell team. Um, so they we not only took their ideas, but we took their developers as well. And uh, and and so that's where some of the ideas of the tray came from. Actually, that was originally a Cairo concept. So this thing of a you know a bar at the bottom of the screen that couldn't be obscured um, came from the original um, Cairo UI designs. Um, they used it in a different way, but that general you know that idea of having a reserved area that couldn't be obscured um, came came from Cairo and lots of other things, the file system ideas um, that went into NTFS in later years. Um, um, search and indexing, which has now become, you know, pretty much you know, the one of the most popular and compelling features of more modern OSs, and um, the sort of pervasive f- the search was prototyped um, back in the Cairo days. It just took a little longer for those things to sort of make it into real products, but a lot of those things made it made it through in the end. It does seem like Microsoft every so often creates code names for projects that really just become research bins. Just a bunch of, you know, the collection of ideas that are executed in various ways and then get calved back off into other code name projects that become products. Yeah, it's pretty common. I mean, it, people move around, markets change, um, and so projects kind of, uh, kind of come and go. Um, and, uh, we're all, whenever we start some sort of new idea or some new market, uh, opportunity, we would go run around and look at what's been done before. I mean, there's so many smart people in this company and, and part of the challenge is, is you just kind of lose track of everything. It's, it's very hard to know what's going on. And, and you know, I read Tim's blog half the time just to find out what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> um, it, you know, uh, Raymond Chen's blog as well. You mentioned that earlier. I mean, that's just a fascinating insight into, um, you know, sort of Windows, Windows history and has all these connections with other projects that have, have sort of come from that, that original work. Raymond's a dynamo. Um, yeah, and it, it's just uh, it's 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 really hard to keep track of a lot of those things. Um, but when we do it, when we do it well, um, we will go back and and look at some of the great research that's gone on um, around the company that maybe didn't make it, and then absorb that you know that that great technology into some some new products and maybe with a mod, with a with a newer twist on it. But for, nothing's really wasted. You know, everything right. people write things down, they write white papers, they get stored away, and then they come back. Um, you know, a couple of years later. Some of it, I think, also is just a product of, of time, right? I mean, you think of, you know, when, when you go back to those the time time zone for, I mean, Cairo was, well, I think, the release after Daytona, I think, which was three NT three five. Sure, so, that's right. So, so I mean, you know, those those days, you know, the kind of specs that you had for a machine to run on. I mean, it was you know, you're looking at maybe sixteen megabytes of RAM. You know, <laughs> the idea that right. uh, you know you could you could you know do almost anything in sixteen megabytes <laughs> these days is is just you know, a joke. And I, I remember mocking the the common Olay team um, because they had uh, they needed a, their DLL uh, needed about 500k, I think, to run in, uh-huh. and we just thought that was hysterical. <laughs> what do you possibly need 500k? You want for? That's just ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, that was the time when we were struggling to do um, um, to get Windows 
Windows 95 to at least boot in, in four mags. I mean, that was, and to do 32-bit and 16-bit and have it <laughs> at least kind of work in four mags. Um, you know, just crazy. Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerix Q2 2000 Tools Update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. I really got to ask this question, and I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this or if you ever thought about it, but what do you think is a more difficult challenge, trying to get something like Windows 95 to just work within the confines of the segmented architecture of the x86 or something really, really, you know, millions of lines of code like Vista? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, they they represent different kinds of challenges. Um, you know, those that particular thing, we were all pretty used to writing uh, segmented memory um, and and just sort of dealing with select as an offset. So that was kind of second nature. That that it, you know, we were almost resisting the switch to thirty two bit. Yeah. Because um, it's just <laughs> bigger. You know, I've solved all the problems in sixteen bit. Don't right. make me write this stuff in thirty two bit and everything. All the pointers got twice as large for really no benefit. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so we kind of resisted it. Um, uh, so that you know that that challenge was uh, it was a different kind of challenge of of really how to how to uh, switch Win sixteen over to thirty two bit, embrace threads, long file names when new. Um, you know, those things were. It was definitely a challenge about how to redo. Uh, the memory manager and squeeze as much uh, memory out of the thing as we could possibly get. And memory was extremely expensive then, so that it, it didn't seem likely that people were going to be able to get to go out and buy more memory. And, and we probably couldn't have been more wrong, um, since within a couple of years after that, it, memory prices just dropped enormously, and it, it became less and less of an issue. Yeah, I guess you guys had to thunk twice about it. Yeah. Ah. Oh, ah. oh please save me. Oh, oh man. Kill me. We need a slow motion replay. Permanent of that scarring. Joke. That's what that is, right there. We need a slow motion replay. <laughs> Just going to move on. Actually, there was a joke there. I don't. I don't remember that. <laughs> Um, yes, Vista is a different set of problems. Vista is just um, uh, you know, hugely complicated, and uh, it's so much bigger. Uh, the OSs have gotten so much bigger over the years, um, as as you know, needs have, have increased, and so there's a lot more people working on it, and so there's a lot more coordination that has to go on. Uh, and then the challenges in bringing all the different pieces together um, to, to produce the final shipped product. Um, and that, that, you know, we didn't have those issues in the early days. Everybody worked on the same floor in one building. Um, so if you had a problem, you could just sort of walk across the hall and, and go chat with someone. Uh, in Vista, uh, it's spread on, you know, multiple buildings and multiple divisions, all contributing, um, some great technology and coordinating all, coordinating all of that, um, just is a herc- it was a Herculean effort. Um, and, but before we can even really dig into Vista, I think we got to take a step back to uh, Longhorn and the PDC. You know, the product went through a lot of changes, and which is funny because obviously we had Whistler, which was an unqualified success. Well, let's as define a what some of these things are. What was Whistler again? XP. 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 Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so then it was going to be Blackcomb, yeah. <laughs> which Blackcomb became another Cairo. <laughs> 
it just sort of disappeared. It was so vast. And so then there was this, and of course the joke is Whistler and Backcomb are ski mountains not far mm-hmm. from here. And between the two of them is this place called the Longhorn yep. Bar. And so they made the interim release. I mean, that is the joke. This was the interim yeah. in between these two. We'll have Longhorn. <laughs> you, you can, and it just blossomed into this. Well, when we saw it at the PDC, this massive operating system it was an incredible. Everything was improved. <laughs> a different network stack, a different video stack, a different drive stack, a different communication stack. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. It almost became, I mean, really what the vision for Black Coon was in many ways. I think, uh, you know, I think there were, there were a couple of very, very early kind of design explorations for, for Black Coon I remember seeing. And, and they were things like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have things like a carousel control to kind of, uh, navigate through the system and things like that. And, and of course, you know, a lot of those things actually wound up just going back into, into Longhorn. So, uh, um, yeah, it's sort of funny how, you know, these, these, I suppose you've really got to look at it in in, in different ways. The, the reality is that you know we we have trains leaving the station, if you like, that are, are the the ship vehicles, the things that we actually uh, um, deliver. And and you know you can get on on a train or you can miss the train and and wind up on the next train. And sometimes one train gets cancelled altogether. And uh, you know the thing you're waiting for the train after you actually wind up getting on the earlier train. And uh, you know so it, it's sort of funny how those kind of things. Uh, sometimes kind of deviate and, and, and move. And I, I guess the challenge of, of effective software engineering is how you, how you bring in this, this vastly disparate organization, as Ian sort of mentions, where you've got so many different groups all working on very different um, needs and, and, and uh, you know, t- technology types, uh, all of which take different lengths of time, and how you really kind of consolidate and corral all those different uh, pieces together into, uh, into a single, you know, so, so the train leaves the station on time, and there are people on the train. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, and also PDC 2003 was, was uh, that was one of those times where we decided to talk a lot more, a lot earlier about some of the ideas that we had that were, I think, a little bit more speculative and try and get feedback um, in, in a broader way than we'd, we'd done in previous PDCs. And I, you know, and I think some of that was great because we got great feedback um, from uh, from developers and end users about what were good ideas and what were dumb ideas, um, um, but also, um, you know, it was probably a little too early in that that I think some folks thought uh, we gave the impression that that some things were going to make it that you know maybe really didn't have a really good chance of making it in the end, and um, and once we'd sort of figured out what should make it and what we really needed to do, that a whole bunch of things sort of got left for for later versions. Um, and of course, we were dealing with with multiple OSs at the same time as well. I mean, I think this this often gets lost that we were doing XPS B2 at the same time, and there was Tablet and Media Center, and so there was a lot going on yeah. in parallel with the Longhorn release. That uh, you know, we had to make some trade offs. You know, we had to go move resources to uh, to go uh, to go do um, the SP2 for for XP, and that was totally the right thing to do. But it, it was the right well. thing to do, and I'm glad you did it. And I've said it before; I'll say it again. If you had it to do over again, you'd probably do the exact same thing. That was killing you. Yeah. Well, and, and we were there in in August '05 at the Evangelist Airlift. Remember? Yep. Where when uh, the first announcement were made that uh, about mm-hmm. SP2 and the restructuring of what was then Longhorn, although really. The only true casualty of that entire exercise was WinFS. Yeah, the, there were a, that was the big casualty. There were actually there were a lot of smaller, smaller. You know, uh, a few people got winged on the way. Um, if they weren't complete casualties, they weren't mortally wounded. Um, so a, a lot of things <laughs> did, little things did get get left out, unfortunately. Um, but WinFS was yeah was was the big one that. Um, that definitely didn't make it. That that was one of the big pillars that we were, you know, really working hard on and trying to trying to figure out. A lot of people working hard on that, trying to figure out when we could, if we could converge it in time. And and you know, you just did the math on the schedule, and it just wasn't going to make it in time. And so that then caused, you know, how do you get some of the end user benefit of search and organize without using WinFS? How do you how do you get that feature done using more traditional means? And so there was a whole new effort had to get spun off really quickly. Um, to get uh, to get the search feature in, and what ended up in Vista, and I think has proven pretty successful, um, but kind of starting in a new way, and that that was a you know major major change in strategy for the um, for the shell team um, to have to sort of uh, to to pick up that feature and do it in a, in a different way. Um, I think they did a great job, but it was certainly a, certainly a, a bit of a battle there. But equally, there were things like Workflow Foundation that that you know wasn't even mentioned at PDC. 
um oh three that uh kind of you know again just the trains leaving the station um piece they they uh were you know were very start fast to get going and uh you know made a lot of head headway very quickly and uh you know they they wound up in the product even after we'd we'd sort of uh you know rescoped the release down a little bit well i've got to ask the question um are we going to see any of these features reincarnated in the next version yeah, I mean it, it's um, it's hard to say specifically, but um, you know any of those things that were I think generally any of those things that were good ideas you'll you'll see in a future version of the OS. And you know a lot of those things were um, were just uh, uh, you know a little bit maybe ahead of their time and our uh, and beyond our ability to implement them um, with the quality that we wanted, with the security that we wanted in the in the time available. But um, yeah, it's it's um, you know nothing's again nothing's really lost. Um, they didn't make the date, and um, so they'll end up. Uh, right. I'm sure showing up in a in a future version. What you know, um I guess WinFS is the big one, you know, how I I know that uh, that sort of got, you know, refigured out and redone like you just mm-hmm. said, but um you know, what was the initial idea behind WinFS and what was you know, what exactly was the problem with it and and uh are we do we have the same benefit of the original intent now, or are we going to get something different in the future? What's what's that all about? That's a tough kind of question to ask, I guess, because because both of us are kind of client guys. But yeah. I mean, yeah. the 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 WinFS piece, um, you know, again, to Ian's point, a lot of it is, is actually wound up in in uh, you know releases that that are coming to a desktop near you soon, as it were. The uh, okay, you, when you look at the, the WinFS piece, and we kind of. Uh, uh, when we when we announced the changes that we were, were taking place there, we we kind of looked at the various different layers of WinFS, and, and there was this kind of layer that sort of sat on top of the database that was really um, just around the kind of fairly purist concept, concept of an entity, yeah. um, and uh, you know just just you know without getting too too deep into the specific um, classes of entity, just just talking about how you know an object kind of mapped onto onto a database and. You know, to an extent, a lot of that stuff is uh, is, is there with the ADU.net entity framework. So, um, so is it that you really wanted to make a robust entity framework before you banked the you know the whole operating system on it, and you didn't want to create yet another sort of half-assed uh, uh, object, you know, relational mapping thing? Well, I think once you, when, you know, when you take the the sort of uh, you know when you look at something and you decide you want to kind of scope it down a little bit, there are a few ways you can do it. You can either reduce the um, the breadth of of what it's intended to cover, or you can look at the various layers and and start sort of um, you know start at the bottom and kind of build up from right. from the ground. And uh, you know the ADO.NET entity framework is really is really the foundation, if you like. Of, I agree. Of, yeah. Of that kind of experience. Uh, you know the higher level things on on Winifest were some things that are, you know people have tried to do for 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 many many years and uh, you know as, as Ian says I think they they wind up as as longer term quests for the company still around uh, you know how you connect all these different islands of data together and uh, you know we 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 may take another uh, crack at it um, in in a different form but. Uh, uh, you know things like how you represent in a canonical way uh, a contact or, or or you know a person. You know yeah. every, every every time you try and come up with a canonical representation for even something as simple as an address, you've got to take account of so many different uh, uh, ways of of doing it. And right. you know ISO committee standards have been around for, for for many years attempting to do some of those things. And I think probably we you know there are elements there where we we bit off a little more than we could chew. Um, but you, yeah, we had the object file system in Cairo, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, in, and I remember SQL Server jumped into yeah. the equation for a while. Remember the relational right. file system, you know, and that was going to fix Exchange that, that we're going to that's going to move the data store over there. I mean, look, this is not an easy problem right, to solve, right. and, it, and it's been fought over and over and over again. Uh, and I remember when we when we talked to uh, Daniel Simmons from the Entity Framework team, they said the big thing was narrowing the scope down. To something yeah, that's right. shippable, you can get a piece and get it out there and get people using it and understand what's important about it, and then go make it better. Well, let's talk about the desktop stuff. You guys are all about Silverlight and WPF, and you know that's taking center stage not only in Vista but in XP and uh, in .NET 3.0. It's uh, it's quite exciting. I've I've done some recent experiments. I uh, did some video uh, stuff with Silverlight 1.0. I'm looking forward to Silverlight 1.1. Um, diving into WPF a little bit, uh, and wow, just bravo, great stuff. What can I say? It's a hit. 
<laughs> Do you, you agree? Can, you you, you so, can talk about kind of the history of that. I think. I mean, that's you know, it's a it was a very long long road for your for your team building uh, what yeah. was Avalon, right? Yeah, someone was asking me about that. Uh, gosh, a couple of months ago, I think uh, on campus here. Um, you know, some of the ideas behind. Uh, I, I'm only laughing just because I'm thinking back that uh, some of the ideas go back to the Windows 95, Windows 96 era um, <laughs> when we were we were sort of confronting some of you know why was it so hard to do some of the user interface stuff that we wanted to do for Windows 95, and you know we didn't have the time all the resources to do, you know, hundreds of different prototypes and usability study them. We, it, it was just, we had to go write a ton of code and, uh, we got to do that maybe once or twice and, you know, hope it, I hope it turned out. Um, thankfully it did. Um, but it was so expensive to do sort of UI prototyping and, and, uh, and user experience work back then. Um, so we started thinking about uh, some of the things we needed to address. And, you know, and prototypes came and went and projects got started and morphed into other projects. And then early in 2001 was when we sort of really started attacking it um, and decided that the time was really right to uh, to really make a make a good go and, and really look at uh, the, the UI user experience issues that the platform had had and why was it so hard to write really compelling use, uh, uh, compelling applications with, with really compelling user experiences. Um, and, and that's where sort of Avalon really started, but it was, it, you know, came out of the, out of a, many years of research from many different teams uh, across the company. Um, and we knew back then that, that we would need to think about, um, cross-platform and how it integrated with the web scenarios, um, and devices. And, and we just, we just sort of picked what we thought was the most, uh, important scenarios to go after first, which was, was, uh, the .NET side of things. Um, so we did that work first, um. And then, as we got to the end of uh, of .NET, uh, uh, we got to uh, for 3.0, we got to go back and uh, and start working on uh, on the uh, cross-platform subset, which then became Silverlight. Thank heavens they they gave it a cool name because <laughs> that that WPFE thing was was not really going down too well. Well, and I remember Brad Abrams' explanation of this too. He says if you start with a lousy code name, you end up with a great product name. <laughs> is that the philosophy that that suddenly everything becomes clearer um because we, we do that yeah. a lot um, you know. uh yeah no it was uh you know as soon as we as soon as we started uh, doing uh, the prototyping and getting builds out there in ctps for for customers i think we realized pretty quickly we were onto something big well and that was the chris anderson era in the er- those early days absolutely yes yes but if we, you know, if you take one step back, and I, I use this explanation every so often when people say, well, what, what about Vista? And I say, well, you know, the big thing is fundamentally the graphics engine that Windows has been depending on, which was called the GDI, has been the same since Windows 3.1. Oh, before. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the architecture of, of that it goes back to, to, you know, Windows 1. I mean, the, right. we were already sort of locked into into the compatibility issues that, that Raymond talks a lot about. Um, you know, by Windows by Windows 3.0 and Windows 3.1, there were a lot of things that we just couldn't even change that we knew were, was was a bad idea. You know, um, the sooner you guys realize your palates, the the better off we'll all be. <laughs> oh, oh now, how many hours have you got to talk about palette switching? Gosh, oh <laughs> man. But uh, and of course the the solution to that for a long time was the direct X move. Sure. Sort of hanging a lot. Okay, you want to do something outside of GDI? Yeah. Here's a right turn for you. Yeah. And you, and the whole machine goes bonk and now you're in direct X mode. Yeah. Yeah, it it, it took uh, you know direct X obviously evolved out of the the desire to do um to do games on on Windows which you know back in the Windows 3.1 Windows 95 days was was pretty much of a crazy idea. Um, but then, uh, you know, the hardware just came on such a pace, uh, in that sort of late nineties. Uh, it's just amazing to see the, the evolution of that hardware. It's just incredible. And, you know, and that, that was sort of the realization we, we reached in, uh, in the early days of, of, of Avalon was we, we have this hardware sort of sitting idle most of the time for right. most people. We've got to be able to take advantage of it um, and and bring some of the 2D stuff that we had in GDI, bring it to this new hardware, and be able to to integrate 2D and 3D uh, and and media. 
And that's where, you know, a lot of the, the, the focal point of WPF came from, um, from that realization that there's this untapped hardware and we could, uh, we could hopefully do some, some amazing things and build a new programming model to sort of make that easy for people, uh, for people to do. And, and of course, that's kind of what happened in, in, in Vista that, that worked out pretty well. And we got the hardware, the sort of default hardware for running Windows switched over. Uh, to using this, uh, the DX stack, um, thanks to the fantastic work the DX team has done for, for many, many years. We'd be nothing without, without them. They just did an amazing job and, uh, gave us this foundation that we could really build on and add these, these extra layers, um, on top of all the way up to, uh, to some of the, the, the crazy UIs that you've seen with, uh, with WPF, which is pretty wild to see. Do you guys have Macs? Sure. <laughs> well, on the, well, obviously for the Civilite side of things, we got, Buildings full of Macs. Sure. Um, or do you mean personally? Yeah, I mean, do you, do you get any? Do you ever go looking and seeing what they're doing and trying to get in, inspired or any ideas? You... Oh no, no, never at all. Of course not. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I I can I can speak for myself personally. I learned to code on on uh, Apple II, um, so oh. I've had Macs at home for a while. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, the funny joke is. Uh, my wife, who absolutely hates computers, uh, much prefers Windows uh, over over Macintosh. So she might be the only one. Um, but uh, um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. But I use that as a great talking point whenever whenever I can. Um, well, they uh, just came out with their new OS, right? The Leopard OS X, the Leopard yes. version. Yes. Have you have you seen it? Do you know anything about it? You know, I haven't I haven't looked at it yet. Um, you know, other than sort of reading some of the blog posts, um, I haven't had a chance to uh, to to play with it personally. That must be uh, a weird thing, right? I mean, just you know, having to go look at what somebody else is doing. I mean, and they're so religious about the Mac. You know, the Mac users love the Mac so much, and it also translates into the hate of the PC. It must. It's a weird dynamic. I tell you, um, I was looking at the um, just uh, the, last night at the uh, review of uh, Leopard on Ars Technica, um, and uh, was just laughing at uh, they had a clip from the original kind of launch of of Aqua, the uh, Apple uh, UI, and they had Steve Jobs kind of uh, you know talking about uh, talking about the the, the the you know the buttons and uh, the, you know these are so sweet you could you you want to lick them and. Uh, <laughs> It was, it was, it, you know, just watching the way that people were hanging on his every word. It just yeah. sort of was was very amusing to kind of see how, you know, how how the industry is, is shaped shaped like that. So, and he loves uh, to know. get up in front of crowds and tell everybody, you know, and and laugh about how Microsoft stole this and Microsoft stole this and, you know, we're the we're the real deal and you know all this. It's just really funny. But it's <laughs> like it's interesting to see that uh, when we finally have some other OSs out there that are mattering in OS X and in Linux, which is, it's, but it's still not like it was in the 3.1 era. I mean, there was so, back when the, when the graphic UI was still being debated. Yeah. Much less the manifestation of it. Yeah. Well, that, know, that, I, that, that's always the funny thing for me because growing up in England, um, and learning to program in the 80s, like it was wide open. There were, you know, the, the PC wasn't really there. The Mac wasn't really there. Um, and there were 10 or, you know, 15 different computers. All my friends had very different computers. Right. Um, you know, and I was, I was more into the, the Commodore and the Vic and the 64 and then the Amiga. I had other friends who were into the Acorn Archimedes and the, that whole series. Um, and so it was a very diverse, uh, you know, very diverse background. I've sort of carried that with me, uh, over the years. It was, there was lots of great ideas on all of these different platforms. Um, some of those ideas are still not you know, on on the PC or the Mac today, there's still some lessons to to be learned from from some of that that early sort of diversity that that um, that sort of went away as everything sort of centered on the on the PC platform and a little bit on the on the Macintosh as well. Yeah, and, um, and breakthrough technologies like like the web. The first browser yeah. was built on a Next. Yes, absolutely. not that anybody cares today, but it's just a realization that one of the upsides of diversity is different ways of thinking about problems. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, that's, that's another, uh, an, another great series of, um, of sort of hardware innovation, maybe a little bit ahead of its time in, in, in the, in next. We had a, uh, Microsoft had a usability lab here. I don't even know whether we still have it that was just full of computers from, um, you know, from the star, the metaphor machine, ICL perk, um, the Lisa, just the amazing array of, of, of computers that you could go in and just sort of play with and experience and, and sort of take a look at, at sort of different ideas and 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 how way they worked and and the next was one of was one of my personal favorite favorites um, I I love that machine 
Um, I was, uh, I've just been noticing, I was trolling eBay the other day and, uh, there was a whole bunch of ads for, uh, for next machines. Uh, you can still, you can still buy sort of pr- the pristine original cubes. Um, <laughs> and, and they're ridiculously expensive. It was like, really? it was like hang on a second. Uh, they were suddenly like, expensive then and they still are now. They're still expensive now. That's absolutely right. It's like, oh, maybe I should buy one of those and put it in my house. Um, you know, we really think no about this road we've taken as not a straight line, but sometimes right. I think it's the only way it could have happened. And I, and one of the examples for me definitely is the whole direct X thing. Without having that sort of sidetrack away from the GDI to create a gaming environment that created the hardware, I mean, that made the companies of NVIDIA and ATI yeah. to build that yeah. hardware, we never would have had the infrastructure to, uh, to make Avalon possible. Right, right. Yeah, Which is a good way to kind of bring us forward, because I feel like we're sort of uh, almost like a bunch of croaky old COBOL mainframe programmers yeah. talking about how, you know, you always used to be better in the old days. and We're here with, uh, you know, we, we're focusing on, on WPF and Silverlight, which are kind of pushing sort of, you know, really the, the, you know, the blazing trail moving forward. Well, and I find the interesting thing about WPF coming up now in this t- era is also its implementation. You know, the upside to having a brand new way to get stuff on the screen is taking brand new programming techniques. And I'm talking about XAML. I mean, the whole concept of a declarative model for building UI is yeah. huge. It's not just the jump of a better better hardware to use, but a better way to speak to it. Uh, yeah, no, it's... Um um, sorry, Tim. I'm I'm gonna. <laughs> you take this one. <laughs> so it's like you're gonna have to interrupt me if you want to. If you want to get word <laughs> otherwise, otherwise I'm gonna just keep rambling on for days. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the a bunch of things really came together, and I'm not sure we could have done Avalon any earlier than we did. We we needed the hardware to come together that we could really take advantage of um, in DX, and so we could integrate 2D and 3D and media and documents. We needed .NET to make it a, a programming model that that um, people could use. It was practical that could deal with lo- lots of these small objects and not have to deal with the memory management, not have to deal with the lifetime issues that you get, you would have got before .NET, not have to deal with the security issues if you're running uh, running in a browser context. Um, you know, just there wasn't any easy way to do that um, before .NET. So that sort of came together. And then the whole XAML thing was a little bit of an accident. Um, I remember think that we did a very very early design review for some uh for some ISVs and we we hadn't really written much code yet we were just sort of throwing out some ideas to see what seemed to resonate with with developers and i think there was a line somewhere about this xml file format thing and and for us it originally there was nothing to it it was just that you know the tools would output something and the runtime would load the something it didn't really matter what it was and it may as well be xml cuz gosh everyone's doing xml now so if you're going to have a text file format you better have your angle brackets right um, <laughs> and uh you know we'd move from square brackets to to angle brackets um but uh, we didn't really think much of it, and we sort of kind of moved on. And then a whole bunch of people said, stop, stop, stop. Go back and tell us more about that thing. And so, well, okay, fine. Um, well, there's this file format thing, and tools will write it, and runtimes will read it, and whatever. And uh, and people started asking lots and lots of questions about it and how they could use it, and was it extensible? And, you know, we realized from that that it, it it was a it was it was a big deal, um, potentially bigger than than we had we even remotely thought it would be. Um, and then that as we talked to developers about it, and suddenly realized what this thing was going to add. It was going to give us this ability to um, to allow third party tools to sort of play in this space, um, to people to process it and manipulate it and generate it and move it from clients to servers. And and uh, and a key thing for us was as to form this foundation uh, of a continuum between developers and designers so we could have these two um, uh, often very distinct classes working together on projects and using XAML as this sort of interchange format. And both both universes could work in their most ideal environment with the most ideal tools and then use XAML to get the concepts um, back and forth. And uh, it, it really took off in ways that, that I certainly hadn't predicted. Um, and then now is this sort of cornerstone for both for for uh, for Avalon for WPF and for Silverlight, it's the same XAML. Um, it's in our XPS document format. It's part of Workflow Foundation. It's used for lots of things, way beyond um, the original sort of Avalon vision. And it's amazing to see see how it's sort of grown up and become a more much more rigorous 
um, you know, piece of technology than than you know one line on some slide somewhere in a in a in a fifty slide deck, you know, going back you know six or seven years. And that manifestation is really the whole blend and studio relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we d- now I'm looking at WPF, and, and really we are we're looking at a 1.0 product, and if, as much as it's stunning, and you've again taken a little left turn with the WPFE Silverlight, but I I can't even get my head around what WPFT2 looks like. What's next? Well, we we have a bunch of things um, coming up in uh, in three five. Um, so uh, any minute now, um, we we uh, the, the beautiful thing about shipping a one zero um, is we get to talk to real customers <laughs> about their real issues rather than a lot of theoretical things and get a lot of feedback. Um, so we did a lot of performance work uh, in in three five and uh, you know a lot of just a lot of focus on some missing features that didn't quite hit the date. Um, so a lot of performance in uh, XML binding, uh, data enumeration, um, uh, support for new languages. Uh, we added index support. So there's a billion people who are going to be a lot happier than they were with with the three O release. Um, and of course, uh, one of the big things was uh, the 3D support. We you know we got I think we did an okay job in the first release, um, but we didn't get anywhere near as far as we wanted to do in terms of integrating 2D and 3D and making it really easy. Um, and so in 3.5, we got to turn around and, and really address some of the 3D stuff. So it makes it much easier to put UI on 3D surfaces and manipulate them and then put 3D models on your 2D bits of UI and, and, and have everything still work. You still want to be able to click on buttons and have your list boxes work and have all that interactivity still work. So that was a, that was something we were really pleased to get in um, in the next version um, that you'll uh, hopefully uh, get to see pretty shortly, um, and then we're just uh, we're thinking about future versions. It, 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 there's there's a you know ten year list of things that we have in our heads that we could really want to get done. Uh, a lot of performance, uh, a lot of new features, um, uh, more link integration. It's, it's an endless list. Um, so we're we're spending a lot of time with with folks. Uh, who are using uh, WPF and finding what they like and what they don't like and uh, reinforcing the things that they like and fixing the things that they don't like. And, and then uh, uh, we've got a whole ton of new features uh, lined up for future versions. So, guys, what's the next Cairo? <laughs> what, what's the next Cairo? <laughs> or what does Cairo mean to you now? Let me put it that way. And I think the point here being, you know, Cairo is the is the master project that everything that hasn't been done ends up in, <laughs> and it never ships itself, but it ends up calving off other ideas and other projects. Is it <laughs> is it accumulating somewhere? <laughs> the, the stunned silence is just uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, that you've 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 basically uh, un- uncovered our whole master plan in one swoop, and uh, we're just sort of uh, <laughs> unbelieving at the enormity of what you've just done there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think uh, you know, there's no one project with the. Uh, code name Cairo. It's probably five, actually, just because we've run out of cities to call various different things <laughs> by now. But uh, there's, there's no kind of uh, single great kind of overarching scheme. But but I, I think, you know, it, it is interesting. We, we, we you know, I, I think are becoming more intentional as a company about looking at what are the big, um, you know, the big goals. Uh, we describe them as quests internally. Um, and so we, we, we're sort of looking at, you know, how does how does the computing industry evolve over, you know, maybe the next 10 years? It's so hard when you're when you're writing software to focus, you know, in the long term. Everybody's busy, sort of worried about you know, the next release and uh, you know getting the bugs out and uh, you know closing down on on a, on a ship vehicle. Um, but but in some ways, it's also important to be thinking about what goes goes beyond and what are the the, the kind of the, the broader kind of missions. Um, that we need to be uh, involved in, and and Bill, I think, always used to do a, a very good um, job of, of of that. That was one of his roles as a chief software architect was was really to kind of uh, look at that from an innovation standpoint. Um, and so some of these quests are looking at sort of uh, you know very similar things uh, in terms of uh, knitting together you know some form of broad future vision and uh, figuring out what are the baby steps that we need to take to get to get there in, in a longer-term period of time. So let's talk um, about something we, that's actually concrete, the next version of Vista. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> that, that's even harder to talk about in some ways because, uh-huh. because now you're really into kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, 
disclosing kind of the contents of the next PDC or... or uh, Do you like how I waited um, to the last one? Yeah. <laughs> you like that? I, I'm not going to sort of uh, throw down my microphone and storm off the show so you're safe <laughs> at this point. Do you think you've got enough, enough material in the bag? <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I mean, it's just a very broad level. You know, you, you look at what we... Uh, you know, what are the challenges that people still still face on in computers today? And I think, you know, without without talking in any any detail about anything we've got planned, um, you know, you you can you look you know, everybody's got their own sort of favorite frustrations with using um computers today. It's you know, it's things like how do I access my data, um, you know, no matter where I am, um, what what device I'm connected um with. And so so when you look at those kinds of things, um, you know, we're we're starting to see a lot of focus on storage in the cloud and with our own services there are things like windows live SkyDrive that uh, provide this kind of virtual store um, and i think you'll, you'll continue to see kind of innovation in those kinds of areas how do we make um you know data and and, and applications more transportable how do we um effectively blend and merge the web and and the, the desktop and and get you know the maximum richness of experience um, without losing that that flexibility and reach that the web web brings, um, and I know for for Ian and I, those those kind of things are very high on our um, list in terms of thinking about where WPF and Silverlight go uh, moving forward. How do we how do we give people the tools to create great experiences that, that go anywhere? Um, and so you'll you'll certainly see more from us in, in those areas over the coming years. It's funny. I was going to say. 10 years is too far on a horizon to make sense of. And then I thought about 1997, we got, and we were just maturing the whole Win95 model and getting serious about 32-bit. And so we actually had a pretty good picture of where we wanted to go today. And then I go back to 1987, and we had Windows uh, 3 up and running. Is that right? No, that's before uh, Windows quite. 3. No, we were in well, we, I know what we had. We had the Mac. Mac shipped in 84. We had the first GUIs out there. We were battling over where the GUI was going to go, which I think you see largely manifest in 1997. So, I mean, there are definitely elements in a 10-year time frame that you can see going forward. Yeah, there are, there are things that you can predict. I mean, with a certain degree of accuracy, you can you can sort of draw the sort of hardware timeline and apply Moore's law to to chipsets and memory and hard drives, and and you can start to think about what scenarios that kind of power uh, would enable and what price points um, would would the hardware is going to be working at, and you know, and, and uh, so things related to that. What's hard to predict is just what what end users what's going to spark the imagination of end users that they're just really going to love and that's going to cause the 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 hardware and software to go off in all, all sorts of different directions and you know I certainly you know remember browsers in the in the early 90s and think well that's really dumb that's never going to go anywhere and uh, thank heavens nobody listens to me and you know cuz <laughs> you know I would have been about 100% wrong on that whole thing and that was the whole web thing just really caught people's imagination and not not necessarily what you could do with it at the time in terms of so the Tim Berners-Lee using it as a research tool but you know now look at it and banking and you know word processing heavens there's almost nothing that you you, you can't do um so the specifics I think um you know, you're you're getting into trying to predict human nature, which thankfully is a, is a pretty impossible task. Otherwise, we'd be uh, we'd be in real trouble. Well, you guys have just got to do something for me. And if you if you never ever do any favors for anyone ever again, <laughs> you have to do this. And that is get some British humor into the error messages of the next version of Vista. <laughs> you know. When the user does something really dumb, you got to say, are you trying to melt me down, you shithead? Okay. <laughs> that, that might not pass our, our localization standards. <laughs> you snotty-faced heap of parrot droppings. <laughs> that one might. That one's probably okay. Uh, you know, we have, we have these things called language interface packs where people can actually, com- you know, kind of uh, submit new translations of Windows. It's been very popular for languages like Welsh that are kind of, uh, have very passionate sort of bunches of users, but, but you know, they, they're not really, um, you know, very easy to kind of... So what we need is a Monty Python language pack? I, I, th- I think we need the .NET Rocks lip, which is basically your kind of uh, <laughs> version where, you know, it's dumbass. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> what do you think? Put down the crack pipe and try again. There you go. Yeah, there you go. It could be very popular. It may may drive windows to a whole new level. Awesome. <laughs> well, guys, this is about we're just about out of time. So, uh, is there any last minute resource you want to point somebody to, or a shout out, or something happening you want to promote? Or the floor is yours. Yeah, I think. I mean, from from my side, I would you know, we've, we since we've spent most of our time talking about Windows three point one, I would obviously point <laughs> people at the uh, Charles Pet's old title on programming. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I mean, more seriously, um, you know, clearly, you know, we're we're, we're keen to see folk, uh, you know, building great WPS and Silverlight applications, and you know, I, I love hearing, uh, as I'm sure Ian does, uh, from from folk out there who've who've built uh, something cool they want to show us. So. You know, please don't hesitate to to drop drop us an email. My my email address is uh, tim s at microsoft dot com. Um, you mentioned the blog, and uh, you know, for for resources, then we have silverlight dot net and windowsclients.net, dot net, which are our two kind of community portals for for building uh, solutions on either technology. Yeah, and I I just add uh, those are those are great great sites to go to. Um, but uh, and also uh, use the forums uh, on MSDN. And, uh, and, you know, ask questions and, uh, and folks on, uh, my team and myself will be there to, to try and answer questions and find out what people like and, uh, what people don't like. And, uh, and yeah, and if people want to send me mail, you can, you can send mail to, uh, to IanEL at Microsoft.com and I'll be happy to answer questions. Awesome, guys. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun and, uh, very informative as well. Thanks. You enjoyed it. Thank All you, right. guys. And All we'll right. see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.